Ba -ba. Boom. <sighs> All right. To the left, to the left, to the right, to the right. Somebody, everybody, scream! Dispatches from Planet Funk. This is the Ace Out Podcast. Dedicated to all whom the man tried to ace out by profiting from the soul without stopping to give props to the prophets of soul. You got that right. This is Ace Allen. Sometimes they call me Barack Wizzing. And we're brought to you by the letter P. And we're sponsored by Pete. P-E-T-E. Otherwise called... People for the ethical treatment of ear holes. Everybody around me is Funk and I'm fam affiliated. Because Funk is just fun with the K. That's why they pronounce it funky. And what do you know? It's New Year's. Happy New Year to you all. This is episode 30. So proud to have episode 30 here. I'm going to join Jay Stone in the studio to interview our first guest. This is a great guest that we talked to in a very heady episode. Uh, we talked to Ricky Vincent, the funky professor, the Uhuru maggot, the guy to go to if you want to know something about funk. He's a professor and an acclaimed writer, and uh, we talked about the past, present, and the future of funk. We talked about the tendencies of funk, the five dynasties of funk, why we need a history of funk, and uh, why we need to discuss it. We want to do more of these talks with Rick. Um, I think we only scratched the surface. As a matter of fact, we talked to Rick so much, we ran out of time to do an intro. That's why I'm here. I'm here at Offhand Records Studio, uh, the Blue Room, with Nick Ways, Ways behind the board and behind the camera for me, here in Oakland, California, our post-production studio, actually, where we uh, edit the video and mix the audio. However, we did this episode at my boy's studio, Nice and Up Studios in San Francisco. Shout out to Chris Cortez for engineering this for us and making us feel so welcome at Nice and Up Studios. I haven't seen Chris in actually a while, 12 or 13 years. It was great to see Chris. Chris is also drummer and leader of the group Native Elements, who I just saw perform New Year's Eve, and they were great. Um, also, I wanted to shout out Rusty Allen and Levi Caesar Jr. for our past episode, episode 29. It was an honor to have them, and that was a fantastic, very successful episode. Since I saw you guys last, y'all, I have turned 50 years old. Oh my God, a 50-year-old wearing a Batman shirt. Pretty sad, but I don't care. Our guest, um, Ricky Vincent, was also, he had a birthday. So last month, you could say, is our birthday month. Birthday month, I hate when people say birthday month. Martin Luther King just gets a day, but we get a month. It's kind of immature. I think you've been pampered too much when you're little if you have a birthday month. No, but we, we celebrated our birthday. Hey, 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 it's New Year, and I'm an old man. You know, also for this episode, we had two great musical performances, so I'm really proud of this one, you guys. Um, Funkanauts, Jay and I and his son, Kyle Coyote Collins, uh, repping the Funkanauts, we played with three Oakland MCs. Dub Esquire, my good friend Monster, and Mel Yell. Shout out to Mel Yell. She killed it. Came in and got down. Behind the camera, Cedric Letch and Jared behind the cameras. Shout out to Three Charge. Scott Shepard making it all happen. 
And also shout out to Needles. You guys, please like and subscribe this channel. Please shout us out in the comments and let us know how you feel. Check us out at aceoutpodcast.com. Our audio-only episodes are still quite popular. We can be heard on our site, but also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and TuneIn. Shout out to our viewers and listeners around the world. We have viewers and listeners in St. George, Utah, Jackson and Madison, Mississippi, San Diego, Brooklyn, Kennesaw, Marietta, and Jonesboro, GA, Euless, Houston, and San Antonio, Texas, Loveland, Ohio, I like that name, Orlando, Florida, Lexington, Kentucky, Denver, Charlotte, North Carolina, Stamps, Arkansas, St. Clair, Shores, Missouri, Whole Sound, PA, Springfield, Illinois, Baltimore, Alabama, Salt Lake City, Utah, UK, Germany, Japan, France, Ireland, Mexico, and Stockholm, Sweden. Speaking of Sweden, shout out to Vane, Andy Six, and the Neon Romeos. They hit me up in their DMs. They love Aced Out Podcast. They are some Funketeers from Sweden. Funketeers warming up Sweden right on. Okay, forget all that. Let's get to the episode right now. Me, Jay Stone, talking to Ricky Vincent. Jay Stone. Yes, sir. This is episode 30, the 30th episode 30. of Aced Out Podcast. Wow. And I can't think of a more appropriate guest. We have here today Ricky Vincent, the Uhuru Maggot, longtime host of History of Funk Show, live Friday nights on KPFA and online around the world. This man's a professor at UC Berkeley, an acclaimed writer, the go-to expert on the funk. Um, so I was turned out personally by his book, Funk, The Music, The People, and The Rhythm of the One. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, Jay, I was a typical Bay Area musician. I had my fingers in a lot of pots, a lot of stews. I was playing right. all different kinds of music, reggae, heavy metal, right. you know, everything. Right. And then um, I was into funk, uh -huh. but, and we were talking about earlier, and we'll talk about some more, it wasn't really consolidated in my mind, like what the funk was. Funk wasn't like a, it wasn't a section in the, in the uh, record store. It's alive, man. Yeah, it wasn't like a specific like, uh, uh, award you would get in the Grammys. You right, know? Right. And, uh, Rick helped, me, uh, helped underline that for me, and that's when I became a funketeer, actually reading Rick's book. Okay. Also for today's show, um, I read his excellent work, Party Music, which shares a title with the Coup album of the same name. Okay. The inside story of the Black Panthers band and how black power transports soul music. And the Black Panthers band, as you know, uh, Jay Stone, is called The Lumpin'. We're going to talk about that a lot. Yeah. Also, on today's show, we're going to feature the rappers Dub Esquire and Monster, Oakland-based rappers and Best Buds of Us. They're going to be backed up by who? The Funkonauts. Uh, Gooch Gang was supposed to be here, but Caliban, uh, who does Gooch Gang with Monster, couldn't make it. He had some family drama. But shout out to uh, Caliban. We're going to have you on soon. But let's get to it. Uh, first of all, uh, Rick, you have some music. Could you talk to us about that first? Give us a little plug. The Ricky Vincent CD, Fool for the Funk. That's right. Fool for the Funk. And Where can uh, we get that? Uh, it's everywhere. It's on all the platforms. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and there's uh, actually hard CDs. I don't know where you can find them nowadays. That's, Who's featured on it? That's that's the thing. Well, here's the thing. Now, I worked with a producer. His name is Phil Jones, and and Phil Jones has Shout worked out. with Zootzilla and, and mm. a lot of these P Funk heads Zoot, around yeah. here. And uh, and he Phil has the name PTFI, Phil the Funky Instrumentalist. Uh. And <laughs> so he just has crates of beats, right? And I would go, and he had produced with Ron Cat. 
You know, he had done a, a, some of the Ron Cat tracks with the big extra large slap on them. Mm -hmm. That's a Phil Jones production. Gotcha. So he makes sure that, you know, it's got all the music and then all the the womp that, that you want on there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I he uh, I saw him at a show one time. He said, Rick, you're next. I'm like, I'm next? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so it was just time to, to get into it not even knowing what Ricky Vincent, the radio guy, was going to do other than I was um, just as hungry for the funk as anybody else. <laughs> and so what happened was he, you know, he would sort of play me selections of these beats. And then I realized I had this archive of uh, music interviews from people mm -hmm. and, um, and that nobody had really heard that I hadn't, you know, maybe I put them on the air one time right. and didn't do anything. And he played me some big spanking beat. And I said, oh, man, my Junie Morrison interview should go right on top of this. Oh. And so we looped it around because I asked, I said, Junie, what, is it, what does it mean being a keyboard tone wizard? And Junie's like, keyboard tone wizard, yeah. <laughs> and so Phil looped that in there, keyboard tone wizard, keyboard tone wizard. And so you get this sort of opportunity to, to, to learn the funk and you get the big bump. You know, it's not just, you know, a click track and somebody talking. It's a it's an arranged song. And his music, Phil always made songs that were like arranged, you know, they had a bridge, mm -hmm. they had a breakdown mm -hmm. and, and so the bridge. And so it, you know, I kept we just kept doing that on and on and till we got a real rhythm. It, it just made me think of uh, when uh, Bernie Worrell passed and um we all knew what was going to happen to Bernie because mm -hmm. he it was public that he had stage four right. lung cancer, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. so it was just, you get as much Bernie as you could. And I did an interview with him and and I felt awkward because I was trying to get information as a journalist, but no, nah, you love the man. Right. And so it right. was just a beautiful, it was a, it was a, uh, a melancholy thing. Right. And then I had this interview. And then Phil was like, man, I got to do something for Bernie, about Bernie. And I said, well, here's this interview. I just sent it to him. And then a few weeks later, here's a song that has this conversation with Bernie wrapped into uh, some music that, that Phil did. And mm. I was like, whoa, we had all the songs, but we got to add that one to it. Right. Because that was just too much. And so it was that kind of thing. It was like digging into the music. Uh, the beats all kind of speak for themselves and then towards the end of the process I started to get a little loose about it myself and he, uh, he played me this bumping track and I said man that sounds like that sounds like go wiggle let me get on top of that <laughs> and just say you know everybody go wiggle and then all of a sudden you know as I came out from under my sheet and just put put some right. some little groove allegiance up into it because nice. you know, yeah you know the history but the history is so that you can get funky with it. Right. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. So, um, so it's kind of all of those things, and you know, we threw it out there, let it out there. Was, you know, looking at other other things to do with it, other ways. I was working with these guys that um, had a little sort of gr I'll just call it a groove ensemble called uh, Smoked Out Soul, mm -hmm. and um, Will Maggot, he's that plays trumpet and. Uh, a couple other guys that he works with, it was like a little club thing where they would loop some classic soul and then play real instruments around the loop. Mm. So 
you know, youngsters fresh. Youngsters don't really hear songs. They just hear nope. grooves. They hear right. pockets. They BS. hear like, ooh, that little hook. Right. And yeah. and so these these guys understood that. And um and so some of their instruments are on some of the song the extended version of Go Wiggle. I got a bunch of them on there, that kind yeah. of thing. And I was like, you know, maybe maybe we can Sort of expand, do some live, what, what, live, what, what? <laughs> and, you know, we were sort of nibbling on that thing. Yeah. And then COVID shut everybody down mm. and things happened. Okay. And, and it didn't, ha- you know, that didn't go. And I don't know about you guys, but yes, COVID kept a lot of us locked down, but that didn't mean you were like creatively flowing. No. Some people were, but some people was just like, man, I, I, got, I got nothing. Right. And so we're back in the world. More or less, right about now. And uh, so then, you know, my nose is back open for all that funk. Yeah. And I'm like, ooh, what about this? Ooh, what about that? And then sometimes, um, and you guys know, because I you know, let, let y'all know. So what about this Funkadelic remix, right. remake? Let's do some of that. And then some things happened, like Pedro Bell passed away. And yeah. I was like, oh, that ain't right. We got it. Do him right, yeah. And so I did a radio tribute to Pedro Bell. We was reading some of the liquid language that he had right. on his album cover. Yeah. Right, yeah. He was the album artist for Funkadelic Amazing. and George Clinton's solo work. And folks don't know uh, that a lot of us grew up when I was reading the Funkadelic cover album. I, <laughs> I thought that was George. I thought Pedro and George were the same person. Right, because right. it was just so much stank on it. I was like, "Could two people come up with that much no heavy, doubt. crazy, lunatic funk from the street?" And I was, and so it was like, and then he, you know, we lost him kind of in obscurity. And I'm like, "Nah, Pedro is a Pedro is is one of the giants of of the form, mm-hmm. really." And um, and I had gotten to know him over in the '90s. A lot of us kind of connected old school style email had just begun um there were like right, some right. early email threads for people to be on funky music mailing lists yeah, things yeah. like that yeah and uh, folks would send things in the in the mail in the regular mail okay. to each other and i How sent him that? some demo he uh-huh. sent me some some stuff True. probably just to get rid of his warehouse full of material <laughs> right and um you know so it was so i interviewed him back in the day so then when he oh, passed you did? Let me ask you, because I don't even hear that much. What is Pedro? What was Pedro Bell like as a person, like to chill with and to talk to? Pedro was just uh, he he had that kind of slang approach to life that 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 you would you would expect from someone that that wrote that style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, he was just a warm, beautiful cat. But he, you know, everything he everything he said was a was sort of in the in the way that someone that tells the story of a the of the splank that <laughs> comes through. Yeah, where was he from? Um, he was in Chicago when um, most of his life. So okay. I'm not sure if he, yeah, yeah. if he got there or not. But that's where he started his career. Mm. Um, and he said he was just he was just designing. He said he was designing. Um, Packages, envelopes, and things like that. Did he go to? Was he a graphic designer? I think he was self-taught. Yeah. Okay, awesome, I man. I, I went to school for graphic design, but when I see that, it's like yeah, there's no there's no rules being followed none, there. None. He just came up with it his none. own way, and there were efforts to try to give him his his due, 
give him his propers and do tributes to him. Yeah. And I went to L.A. There was a tribute to him, That's right. and they had some of the original panels That's right. that he had nice. written on three foot by three foot, you know, panels oh, really? for each album cover. Yeah. He would just have some some big felt tip markers he bought at the store, right, and, and just. It really intricately, you know, did these things, and sometimes he would, um, you could tell he would take a photo and trace the photo and then mutate it in right, his yeah, own right, in right, his own right. funky way, <laughs> and uh, and but that was, you know, that was the funk. That was, you know, because they talk about like, well, hip hop has break dancing and and DJ, well, it has graffiti art mm -hmm. as an element, and so P funk had P funk visuals as well. That's right, and you know, major it's some, ingredient, of and it. it's a way to tell Staples. this whole story that, well, we need more storytellers to tell that, mm -hmm. and so Pedro, it th that moment came and went. I thought for for him to really get his due, because. Um, you know, he deserves he deserves to be up with these people that that there isn't even an institution in place to give him the, you know the recognition that he, that he deserves. Pedro Bell. Um, so we did a radio tribute to him, and I pulled out the interview yeah. and some things, and I'm like, this radio tribute, I'm gonna condense that down into a tribute song to Pedro Bell because Overton Lloyd, the other yeah. primary uh, P funk. Uh, album cover mm -hmm. artist who designed the Sir Nose Devoid of Funk Nose, poster yep. and all that that everybody has. Uh, all of us back in the day had. Yeah. Because it came in your album. It came, it came in. in yeah, they don't know about that. <laughs> no. no, you buy an album for $4 and there's Ooh, a there's poster, a poster that's worth $40 right now. Right there. Um, like a prize in a cereal box. It's cool. Some people still have the poster <laughs> in that album right now. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't even know it. You know? Don't even know <laughs> but uh, there was a, a, a documentary on P-Funk, and Overton is up there saying, Pedro Bell is a paradigm shifter. Oh, and the things that go on in his head, and he gives us permission to do, you know, the thing that mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. like, Permission—that's well, an interesting word. Let me just borrow that. And yeah, put that yeah. in this tribute to Pedro Bell, the paradigm shifter, mm -hmm. and that's you know, P Funk does a whole lot of things. It's not just uh, play a couple club hits. Yeah. It's just on this way other level, and any way to sort of get folks to get past that that beginning part. And it's good there's a beginning part. Yeah. Because I, I, was, I was young when P-Funk came up, mm -hmm. and I knew there was a whole lot going on, and I actually was, like, hoping that, well, if they get something going, then more people will explore more. Dive deep. In there. Because Chocolate City was a big hit, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really a, a regular hit because it right. was so different. It right. was uh -huh. so... You know, color. It was just a, a crazy sounding thing. Right. It wasn't a dance song. It was. It, it, it was. It was just. A, it was P funk, and um, so you you just found yourself hoping for more, and then boom, it happened. More happened. Right. The mothership. The P funk uh. Earth tour. Everything happened, and uh, and we still folks still exploring it, and that's a beautiful thing. We just mm -hmm. want to make sure everybody can find it. That's right. It is a beautiful it. thing, and I I like what you said earlier about. You need, you know, institutions need to be in place to even grant this type of recognition because we see it is for other types of people, other types of music, right? So there's just institutions right there that say you get your award, you get your recognition, you get your special on VH1 or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. so, let, so let me ask you because I don't even know because you spend so much time blowing other artists up as you're talking about. 
let me ask you, when did you first get into broadcasting to start the History of Funk show? And how did you just, like, how did that turn into a book? Like, how does that process? Did you always want to be published or just want to uh, broadcast? You know, I just, I re, back in the day, checking out all the big bands that came to the, like, the Oakland Coliseum Arena, right? Mm. And it just seemed normal that there'd be a lineup of four or five monster bands and you would make your way down there and you know here's the Isaac brothers here's brass yeah. construction you know brass here's, construction here's Ohio players, you know yeah. this is brick i mean all these incredible yeah. acts and 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 like but then you read your music magazine unless there's a good issue of like uh mm -hmm. you know soul rhythm and you know wow. some some R&B magazines which there weren't that Old many Old Five or something yeah uh, you didn't you didn't see it. It wasn't in the local paper. It That's wasn't right. in the rock and roll journalism. I'm like, this is a whole movement. Right this here. is a whole thing. And uh, musicians that I was growing up with, they all understood. They, all knew it. It. they got it. They could see how a lot of these musicians were very sophisticated, mm -hmm. and yet they were also skilled at making accessible music. And some some people just paid. Right. You know, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire. They paved the way. It's like you can show all your musicality. And be accessible, right? And that was that was a hard lesson for like jazz musicians to learn because they uh -huh. were well, we want to show our musicality, right? And to hell with the market, to hell with the right. we just want to show. But then <laughs> wait, if you can mix the two, yeah, and uh, and show that you have chops and reach the the, the people, the uh, then you know you can you can take this to the moon. And this is what was happening, and it wasn't talked about music journalism mm -hmm. just wasn't going on and the more i sort of peeked at this stuff before i became a researcher or whatever it's like well there's all this writing about blues and soul and the 60s and you know the soul music and the civil rights and and yep. i got no problems with that but it's the 70s now and it's about the bomb it's about the <laughs> funk you know it, where's where's the chapter i'm putting it on the one yeah. where's the chapter yes, on you know no james brown changing the language and the rhythm and and right. putting it all down right. and no one had written about that mm -hmm. and then when i when i came to uh i was an undergrad at cal in berkeley and i stumbled into a class from a, a bro who was teaching the music history class the black music history class and he was a clean cut bro reminded me of maceo parker he okay. was just, okay. just he was just clean every day right. <laughs> uh, but he could explain how dirty the blues was stuff like that mm -hmm. it's like oh i'm with this let me get it very dense a whole lot of material and, blah, blah, blah. and he went through all this music for two semesters and then the last day he shows up uh, with his scratchy James Brown 45s. Okay. And he, he plays super bad, and you know, right. he, and he's playing his 45. And I'm like, and it wasn't hard to see that this is where the music was heading. This is where all these jazz musicians, you know, because mm -hmm. James had to, I don't like to use this term, but he had to whip those jazz musicians <laughs> into shape. No doubt. And say, you take all those crazy chord changes and you put a groove to that. Mm -hmm. And then now we have this funk that nobody else can touch. That's right. And that's what he, and so you kind of saw that, you understood that, taking it from this Professor Ollie Wilson, you could get all that. And, but then he ended with James Brown. I was like, ooh, 
if I taught a class like that, I would start with James Brown (laughs) and go from there. So you're saying that was on the last day, but you're all, that's where we began. That was on the last day. There should have been a a third semester of, you know, what happened since the funk happened. Well, since the funk, every other thread, DJ music, all that techno, disco, EDM, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all that was going on, all the different types of world music. And then you start to pay attention. It's like, and now we have access to music around the world and there's like, all these funk compilations from Africa. I love You know, those. Nigerian yep, funk. No I didn't yep. know there was Nigerian right. funk. If it you ask him, too. it was like, because James Brown turned us out. Fela. And so we go have a that? scream contest. We go <laughs> try to out James Brown each other. You know, and what do they do? Fela did the same Fela, thing. Man, you know, on. and he was like, you know, you, you can't, you know, you know, his mind was blown. He came to America mm-hmm. thinking he was going to study jazz techniques and they got turned out and the and the the the, the revolution wiped him out sandra smith sandra isadora she was the one that kind of woke him up Mm. and and he never did a another pop song after that yeah it was all music music is the weapon right and it was all that and they called fela the african james brown yep Yep. At that time, so did, and he wasn't necessarily thrilled about it because he thought he was <laughs> right, right. He was, he was, he was on something else. <laughs> but, but they was, they was on the same type of thing. It's like you know, we, we can change the world with this thing here that we, we bringing back from the source. Mm-hmm. We're bringing this back from the root, right. and uh, but people around the world was hearing that funk. They were hearing the one. They were hearing what was going on, and you know, you can talk about how popular culture from the kind of colonial sort is going to always spread around and that's true people are going to be familiar with you know the dominant cultures yeah. material sure but then um but what makes it stick you know and why does everybody you know claim it own it and want it <laughs> and i mean we could i mean you could spend time today talking about our hip-hop is taking over the world and start with the k-pop you know folks that are just like Mm -hmm. all right let's find another black music video and copy that as much as we can (laughs) you know and but it's been happening in america the whole time so but we're not even we're not even having these conversations right because the conversations really stopped once the funk blew up because it was like so high, it can't get over. We can't. Right. We can't. Right. Con- like, we can't contain this. Right. right. Yeah. We can't measure it. Right. You know, we know how to measure and quantify and boom, boom, right. boom. And what does P Funk do? It's a pyramid. You just you, you can't get there. And it's uh, a daunting it's a daunting task to talk about. Just explain it or just. It was hard because um, you know I started writing about the music, and um, it was I had a teacher there brother Roy Thomas who was you know he was not a professor he was just sort of one of those people they just let in to to do to do the black stuff <laughs> and, and, and he kind of you know he brought in um DJs from uh, K-Jazz which was real mm-hmm. big then yeah. and and just sort of you know he he prioritized our our culture in a way and he let me write prioritize what, culture. whatever I wanted to write mm-hmm. about I remember the first day. He said, "Well, here's the assigned writings, but if you have something real important to you, let me know, and you can just spend the time and the term doing that." Mm. And I said, "Well, I'm gonna write about the history of funk," and this might have been 1983, okay, something wow. like that. Uh-huh. And you know, I wanted to, and he he gave me free reign, you know, to get into it and and to, to try to set the whole thing up. 
And it wasn't that I wanted to, um, you know, write a bunch of charts and, bo and boxes and, mm -hmm. and flow charts out. I just wanted people to know what what the heck had just happened and what is still happening. Right. Because uh, folks are just you know running around. Ooh, that's hot. Ooh, give me this. Ooh, that. I'm like, but you know, it's a part of a, it's a part of a a, a takeover. It's mm -hmm. a part of a revolution, mm -hmm. and folks don't they not necessarily try trying to hear that, and so they get what does George Clinton pimping of the pleasure principle? Right, you right, know, they right. just go for some and try to just get off on it and and just and, and not even be paying attention or just grab the and simplest get, part get of it turned out. out the wrist. Get turned on, get strung right. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you write a lot beautifully about a lot of that. One thing though, you're talking about like flow charts and stuff like that. You did do a lot of great classification work. I feel with funk where you could actually talk about it and kind of see it. So, for example. I really like your method of breaking up funk into distinct dynasties as a way of describing it in your funk book. So, for example, uh, Jay Stone, as mm -hmm. you're familiar with as well, so you identify the first funk dynasty is the period of unification, you call it, and you say that's about 65 to 72. Yeah. Um, what bands are in the period of unification? Obviously, obviously James Brown, right? Uh, you have, obviously, James, what James Brown did. Um, you got Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street oh, Rhythm man. Band. Yeah. Because those guys, um, they were, and I didn't even know all the specifics, but I, you could just kind of tell. Yeah. They were uh, a house band in L.A., in Hollywood. And so they did covers of all the big hits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and they knew how to make them entertaining. And then over the years, um, we, we find out that Charles had to work them to do originals because like you know we, we making bank here doing mm -hmm. other people's stuff yeah, we don't right. want to we're you know we right. got steady work here and he had to really kind of whip them in the shape and say for all the things we got we can do you know we can we can work this and grow with it and now you can find tapes of the the Watts 103rd Street Band jam sessions mm -hmm. and like 20, 30 minute just workouts of no the group doing, you know, all, using all the different techniques and tricks that all the great R&B acts were using. And yet they were they were doing sort of the free open jam thing. Mm -hmm. And that would lend itself to uh, do your thing, to express yourself, yeah. the big hit and, uh, and the other stuff that they would do. And Charles, you know, he knew how to hit that pocket whenever he felt like it just it, just the way he did it and plus he had someone he had a uh, al mckay in there the guy uh, that went, on, McKay, the Earth, yeah, went on the fire, fire yeah. sure. he had a bunch of musicians that wound right, up right. Uh, with bill withers if you get bill withers live wow. that incredible thing he did uh the live bill withers album most of those musicians were in the watts hunter oh, street oh, man. so he was pulling all these people yeah. together but he was also pulling all the all the energy and all the skills and all the sounds together because it was this is a time when you know yeah if you go down to the you know community center you know black power was the was the talk and it was the it was the vibe but the musicians they were just sort of opening up and so everything was welcome in the mm -hmm. sound okay mm -hmm. here's this free spirit named Jimi Hendrix, who was a, a fully formed, fully actualized African-American man uh, doing things that he didn't fit in any box. He didn't fit in any boundaries. Mm -hmm. He didn't follow anybody. There was nobody before him doing what he was doing. Mm -hmm. 
And so people that open people's nose and and bands that open them up to, uh, we got homeboy here, a young man named Eddie Hazel who can play this crazy guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden he has permission to go to, to open up and do that as opposed to boys sit in the corner and do that rhythm pocket so we chicka, can chicka, imitate a Wilson yeah, Pickett yeah, hit right. and get a record, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the people were opening up. And so it was happening. The right. jazz artists were doing the same thing, everybody. Mm. And there were some folks that could pull all that together. Uh, there were bands. There was the Meters out of mm, New Orleans, yeah. and they they kind of held to the groove part, but they introduced all these different songs. Leo Nocentelli on yeah. the guitar. Mm -hmm. Come on now, yeah. you must know Jay. Uh, you I know, know that guy. Yeah. Who he's on another level, and um, and then you have folks like the Mandrill. Mm. I mean, Mandrill, these cats yeah. were just. I mean, they organically were bringing all these different things together. Right. War, those War. guys coming out of Man. L.A., and so this was some of the beginnings. Of a, of, a, of a sound, yes, but a kind of an approach. And there wasn't anybody talking about it. There wasn't anybody saying, because I mean, because there's ways to say it. You can say it with like from an ethnomusicological point of view that says, you know, well, they introduced the such and such, from, you know, technique <laughs> from the previous experience and blah, blah, blah. And, but you can look at it as a black power thing. And you can say, these folks were saying all of this is ours. All of this belongs to us. So we got all I these see, harmonies yeah. from the blues and, yeah. and soul and the church and the gospel. And we got all this guitar work from Chuck Berry down to Jimmy. To, give me all that. Yeah. And then we got all this horns. We got all this. Give me all. Put it all in there. And then you had folks that were highly skilled, musically trained. Maurice White, Ronald Bell from Cool and the Gang yeah. could arrange these things that were just... They were mind blowing, and a lot of artists would have these ideas, and they wouldn't share them with the band because they knew they had to get a three-minute song going. And da da da. But this was a moment when you can do all of that, and your goal was to make it, you know, where the people, you know, could get it. So that's and, what we mean by unification. So gospel singers, rock guitars, jazz um, chops, but everything. Blues but feel? what made it all fit was you can now fall in the pocket. Yep. Yeah. You could now fit in a groove. Sly and the Family Stone kind of like the pioneer of that because there was so much happening. Yep. And you couldn't keep track. You couldn't take apart Sly and the Family Stone. It was just too much. Yeah, right. right. They were just too much power, too much soul. All the singing that they did. The image, even the image. The look of yeah. them, the, it was so much freedom there. Mm -hmm. It was just completely free, but yet it was so well organized and structured and and we don't have a box to put that in you know we don't you can be there's a lot of free form we're in the hippie headquarters of the world That's right, there's a right. lot of folks just you know <laughs> let's be free right right uh but then sly was a was a magnificent arranger of music going way back to his high school days yep. when they right out of high school uh, he was in the talent contest with the, a harmony group called the Viscaynes. That's right. And right. quietly, uh, the people that, you know, were checking on him and the Viscaynes won the little harmony group, you know, contest and mm -hmm. thing. But they realized that the one black dude, he's the one uh, mixing, he was the one on the controls. He was the one arranging everything. So he was the, the genius behind it all. Uh -huh. And so he went straight to... Autumn Records, this rock and roll label, and they just let him do what he does. They said, here, just, 
do give us more of that. You know? And you <laughs> those know, are great recordings. I've heard a lot of those yeah. too, man. And you know, and so all that skill, and then all the influence here in the Bay, right? We got the. Asian American, you got the jazz, you got the Mission District, the mission, you got the Latin, the you got all the stuff, the film, you got the blues people coming up from the South, and you have the the free form rock sensibility mm -hmm. that said, you know, if if you can't do a fifteen minute track, you know, you, you're not really vibing it, right. <laughs> you're not vibing enough. So it, that you know helped expand people's ideas of, of of you know how deep can you get into this thing because we're free from the three and a half minute format kind of yeah. lock you know lock and key thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that in itself was an insurrection because right. the, the industry had said okay you teenagers we're gonna you know give you you like to dance okay we're gonna control <laughs> this you know and these, this is how the songs are coming this is how you're gonna get them this is where you're gonna play them this right. is what's on the radio boom 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 stay in your lane till you grow up and listen to frank sinatra or do what he did <laughs> uh -huh. but um you know the young generation and you know social change upheaval vietnam the, the movements everything made made people just break the rules right to hell with these rules these rules put us in the mess we're in so far the rules and um, so that's what happened. And then you had artists that could arrange the the rage, that could arrange, arrange the, the rage. Yeah, mm. they could make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And it, you quietly, these geniuses, like, like I mentioned, Stevie Wonder, Maurice White, yeah, um, Ronald Bell. Um, how about Herbie Hancock Herbie making Hancock. sense of all that stuff? Um, Marvin. Yeah, and Marvin Gaye could do so much. You know, he he, he just he was open. He had to be because so much was hitting him so no hard, doubt, man. and wow. so he just he dug in, and so many people did, and there was no one around to to recognize that genius. Because I remember coming up, and you know, the elders were saying, "You don't know what real music is. You need to go <laughs> yeah. listen to Sarah Vaughan, and you right. need to go listen to Charlie Parker, and you right. need to go blah 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 blah." And I, I wouldn't talk back. I would just, you know, okay. I mean, and the more I understand, now that I understand it, um, the whole bebop, the whole alternative avant-garde jazz movement, right, was a way to shut down the bubblegum trends of, of the of the swing bands and the previous kind of incarnations of jazz, it had gotten so formalized. Yeah, yeah. There was too many rules, yep. and there was nowhere to go mm. and nowhere to grow. And so, I, you know, that that wasn't hard to kind of see that. But then you had a, a, a sensibility coming out of some of these jazz giants from Thelonious Monk and 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 the early miles and the mid period miles and then the electric miles <laughs> and, and I mean you had these folks that like I gotta say something I gotta uh, you have to come to me you know I'm not gonna try to right, right. downplay my work to right. you you have to come to me I, this is an this is a, a a high form of of music and culture mm -hmm. right and that's why they're all in suits they're yeah, all right. like look we're gonna elevate this art form because you denigrated it since it was created in the red light district in new orleans or right. wherever you yeah, want to yeah. say but you know we're, we're gonna do something and that was a, a a worthy and honorable mission if you will and so i had great respect for it but 
I couldn't get down with it like, you know, Ray Charles, what I say, get down. Yeah, right, and, right, right. And so those were happening at the same time. Because, you know, there was there was the raw stuff that if you just want to cut loose and get down, there it was. Mm-hmm. And then there was the sophisticated stuff. Right. And these folks was elevating the craft and right. elevating our traditions and all of this. But gradually, both <laughs> kind of spoke to each other. Yeah. And so the, the folks playing the raw music... Uh, Put a little more extra, you know, <laughs> the extra stuff in there, and then you know the ones that have been doing the technique, the real heavy technique stuff was like, well, well, man, that's a party over there. Right. Let me, mm-hmm. let me see. And in some cases, they were just reluctant. You ask any of those jazz players in James Brown's band, it's like, <laughs> well, I wanted to be in Count Basie's thing, but yeah, this James Brown paid. About five times as much when he paid us, but it was you know that was I had to go do it and and then they realized gradually they they did something that changed the world. Yeah, yeah, and this is why I like to talk to Rick uh, Jay because just things start to take form when he's talking about music like no his his subsequent dynasties that he identified uh, the United Funk Dynasty seventy two to seventy six. Then next he has what he calls the golden age of dance music, mm-hmm. naked funk of the 80s, you know, like Rick James or something. Right. And then what he calls the hip hop nation. What I, when, I, when you talk about the United Funk Dynasty, people might argue that's, the, that's a, a pinnacle, 72 to 76. I think of a lecture I heard you do on the Isley Brothers where you said nobody really gives the Isley Brothers credit because they unified R&B with that Jimi Hendrix thing like perfectly. Mm-hmm. Other people are kind of trying to do that, even like you mentioned Miles with Bitches Brew, but it's so right. avant-garde. They, uh-huh. they made it so listenable. They did. They were already I 10 years. The they were decades veterans of, of making accessible, <laughs> popular music. Twist and Shout, the Beatles Come on, covered. Way, way yeah. back. And then, you know, they they sort of had to do some woodshedding with Motown, which doesn't sound like they had any interest in really doing that because mm-hmm. other people were writing their music when they said, well, we know how to make this stuff ourselves. And then right around 1969, uh, they left Motown and they broke from Motown and did uh, It's Your Thing, yeah. Do What You Want to Do. Mm-hmm. And musically, that was like by the numbers, sing a simple song by Sly and the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of like, we got to go in that direction. Yeah. We got to go there. This is where freedom is. And the Ozzy <laughs> Brothers do a song about freedom, mm-hmm. you know, do what I want to do. Yeah. And so they went that way very quickly. And it turns out um, Jimi Hendrix was not only in the band, uh, in the Ozzy Brothers for a good six months in 1965, um, there was a, a, a friend of mine named uh, Bob Davis, soulpatrol.com. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And, okay. uh, and he's been doing uh, a lot of sort of what what, uh, what y'all are doing. Yeah, I know. Uh, so for going right way up. back, and uh, he had a a session with um, uh, Corey Washington. He wrote this book about Jimi Hendrix's black the black story of Jimi Hendrix mm. and Ernie Isley. And then and so we're talking, and the guy does his talk, and you know and. Corey's tight. He's, he breaks the whole thing down. And then they gave it forward to Ernie. And he said some things that, as a researcher, I never knew about. He said, Jimmy moved in with us 
he lived with us. Oh. And he'd be on the couch and boo, boo, boo. And he was he talked about he was tall and had this and going. And he was just he was talking about how much, you know, eleven, twelve year old Ernie was soaking this brother up. Right, because he was a kid then. And he was just yeah. like, man. And, and they had a reverence for this guy who was he was just a side man coming through, but they could tell there there was just something else, and it, there there was some spiritual stuff coming from Ernie about that mm. that time in his life, in their life, and you know it, it's not hard to spot Ernie with the head scarf and the look and right. the whole thing. It's like from the outside in, well, Ernie borrowed some of Jimmy's look, yeah, but Ernie inhabited. Jimmy, it's authentic. He absorbed he, it because he yeah, came. Yeah, yeah. You know, they was they was in. They they was they was you know, breathing his his, his sweat. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was all there. And then um, they were so seasoned as as pop music practitioners. The mm-hmm. Ozzy Brothers were. They knew how to take everything from the R and B background, everything from the pop sound, right. and everything that. Jimmy was working towards, it just naturally fell in. And, you know, I remember because I was a kid and I didn't really understand, I didn't really get the Ozzy Brothers till Who's That Lady? Mm-hmm. Who's That Lady? Mm-hmm. Beautiful Lady. And it's like, you know, if Ronnie was just singing over a click track, that would be a magnificent song because his voice is so strong and yeah. so velvety and so strong and soft at the same time. Mm-hmm. And who's that? But then the instrumentation, there was so much guitar layers on that song. Mm-hmm. Soul of so R&B was, what, did, didn't know what... I can't say they didn't know what to do because there were moments... When that happened, mm-hmm. uh, Edwin Starr, War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. That's a hard rock tune. Yeah. Uh, 1970, and that was a number one pop song in America. And so people understood that, but they folks didn't know how to where the how does this how does this guitar thing really yeah. really work? What, yeah. is, what does it mean? And <laughs> you know, folks knew how to make it work. And I say it now uh, in in my classes. I'm like. You know, we'll talk about this sort of rock continuum that's been in the music ever since folks could amplify, going all the way back to to the blues, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. To electrified blues. Well, it's blue, but it's electrified. And now artists, even the the mainstream artists, En Vogue did one with the with the rock. Want to hear it? Here it go. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, they right. did uh, "Free Your Mind." Free your mind. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Janet Jackson, this black cat. So you find the, and it's like. Right. A black artists know it's there, even if it's not front and center. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, it's like when you have that bottle of hot sauce in your bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, this thing needs a little bit more. So you know, why don't you give me some Jimmy on that? All right, right. that works. But it's it's not fake. It's like right. we want that kick, we want that spice, and that's why you see people uh, to you know like R and B stars today, like they'll. They'll wear a guitar, but they can't play it. But they'll wear it because right. they want to no. say they have a tie to that. Right. But they can't. I mean, some could do her. She can play it. Uh, there are folks that can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like uh, DJ, Khal- DJ Khaled holding the guitar is like, come on. Little <laughs> it's, it's got a function. Let's, let's, oh let's make it function. Yes, I didn't want to bring him up. That's what that makes me think. Are we 
Is, did it end after the? Are we just in this long fifth dynasty? Is there a sixth dynasty for funk, or is that? It's all, the industry is so locked down. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just um, this is where you have to shift gears from the creativity side to the COINTELPRO side. Yeah, yeah. You know, and how and why was this music industry locked down uh, so desperately the way it, the way it has been? And it's unfortunate. Um, and so I go back to that period when these artists had the freedom to do their thing. And I could just imagine, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, 12 brothers with cocoa butter all over them and, you know, just <laughs> smelling up the place, sitting in the room with the ex- record executive, you know, with the contract. Here, don't hurt me. Just here, sign, right. and everybody will be happy, you know, and they'll make their money. And and they and, and those are beautiful cats. Yeah. They weren't necessarily trying to strong, but there's like yeah. there was a different energy. Yeah. But really, it didn't take long. Only about five or six years later, uh, that's when the boys in suits started to show up and say, um, uh, "Boys, the market research says mm-hmm. uh, if you don't give us a disco single, yeah. uh, it's not worth you know the projections to keep you on the roster. So mm-hmm. we don't care what you think about disco. We don't care about anything. But bottom line, and if you don't do this, you're fired. And that kind of heavy handedness was hidden." Obviously, that's how business works. They right. they, they kind of laid it on, but you you hear little uh, excerpts even back in the back in the day, back in the seventies, and so by the eighties, the the sort of the industry had sort of locked these bands. You had bands, but they had to be a freak show. They had to be <laughs> yeah. the nasty band, you know, yeah, yeah. cameo, the barcade, yeah. you know, wearing yeah. just the. <laughs> Speedos. Right. I mean, they were just Spandex. like, you can, yeah, you Jerry can't, curls. you can't be deep. And because I remember uh, when Cameo did uh, "Talking Out the Side of Your Neck," oh yeah, and I was like, that was a throwdown funk jam, and it was conscious and deep. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I could tell they had to wedge that in the side because they were busy taking the bass out of the sound. She's mm. strange. That yeah. was the song, uh, and yeah, yeah. and they were like, you know, we. Can we really drop some dinosaur funk in in this in this sort of next era yeah, of, right. of you know of right. we're just fossils now of the real thing, and and so I knew that was a, a rare exception that kind of proved the rule that uh, somebody else was telling these people what they can and can't do, mm. and that's been going on for so long. It got to the point where before the eighties were over, the black bands. These collectives of black mm-hmm. people, mostly of black men, mm-hmm. um, were just eliminated, mm-hmm. not out of uh, appeal or not, not. They were just like, no, you can't, no, don't even uh, uh. stop. Just, and, you know, by then, rap music was starting up, and these okay. youngsters who were self aggrandizing and not necessarily talking about a collective. Right. Anything. Right. And at the same time, it was fun. And at the same time, the only thing that gave it real kick was the sampling that old school funk anyway. So it was a weird kind of mix and match. But I could see the collective group ethos and the collective group formula and the collective group standard coming out of the black experience and the black music community and and our black history was just getting a beat down to the point where you had to accept the fact that if you were going to be a band that could play the funk, you're going to have to do it off the radio. You're off the grid <laughs> with your funk. Yeah. 
You have to be off wow. the grid. And we were talking about before the cameras were on earlier about how there's a lot of good stuff out there, but it's all decentralized. And it's not like a hub where you know where it's at. It's That's a tricky one because, um, and there was a time when I was like, we need a new Don Cornelius. Right. We, we need somebody that, you know, can pull something together that everybody recognizes. I'm not saying you got to love it, but right. everybody recognizes it and recognize the blackness of it. And there's not even a good word for that because right. it doesn't right. have to be black people. Right. But it has to be some tie in to the, to the spirit, to the stank, to the street, to, right. to something going on, to the culture. Yeah. And, and that could be anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and those right. people, first of all, those people are very hard to find because they have to be masters at so many different, ha- right. you know, they have to be marketing, they have to be hustling. Good they communicator. Have to, uh, they have to be communicated. They have to, um, you know, be able to know when to uh, be in charge and when to just hmm. let someone else, you know, own the space for that That's right. that day. You right, know? right. And when I see a lot of the band, when I see even people like, Al Green on Soul Train. Don let him play and his band play live. Yeah, just like just go for it. Mandrill, he let them do that. Tower of Power when mm-hmm. they played and did What Is Hip with Lenny Williams, uh, killing it right. And all those guys on that, that wall of sound from right. the Tower of Power. You have to let them play horse. live, or it doesn't make sense. Well, that one, yes, but for the budget wise, a lot of bands, he just let them mimic but people got to see them yep right. you know i never would have seen the you know the, the gap band you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have known them right you know until i'd seen them mimicking their their hit uh-huh. on Soltra. and then i was like oh i know what i'm about to get when right. they come to town in the, right. in the lineup you know with right. the ohio right. players right. and who else mm-hmm. so uh but to be able to do that and manage the the market and everywhere else and now it's just we're so far from it. It's like if you come in here, um, I remember talking with Martin Luther about that stuff because he's a guitarist. From the city. He's from San Francisco. Yeah, from over here. And he talks about how even back then, we, he'd have a guitar over his shoulder and he could sing. And they're like, well, why don't you start rapping? Because that's, <laughs> that's what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> right, right. And he had to kind of fend them up. It's like, this is what I do. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, 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 and so the folks that are doing that real music thing are are swimming against the current. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it's uh, sort of outside forces forcing that that current that that kind of mm-hmm. wave upon us. And I'm not saying that there's not a whole uh, culture of of hip hop and and self growth that that people have, and that's a valuable thing. Yeah. And that's an important thing. But it's not the only thing, right. and this is thriving. the The funk thing is thriving, and I think it's because people have just accepted that it's off the grid. Okay, right? It's just not. It's that kind it's of just, music. It's just that kind of music, and there's a lot. And and I'm still kind of kind of looking at. I mean, because I'm around lifelong musicians, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that have that know that you know the fact that we're playing. We're good, okay. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, the fact that we got gigs yeah. over here. Yeah. I heard you talking about some gigs that you were in, and I'm like, wait, that, that, that. But I know you in the uh, purified mint funk insurance, right. and I know you the funkinos. Yeah. You got the whole vision right there. But you do all these other things, yes, Jay. And I'm like, 
Well, that's that's what that's what y'all do. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a life. Living his mm-hmm. life, man. That's Musician. the life. That's yeah. a beautiful thing. Um, but then I see, from my point of view, I see a lot of these multifaceted musicians. They do a lot. But when they want to do what they want to do, they bring that funk, mm-hmm. and maybe that's just a Bay Area thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But and we, f- folks know it's like, well, let's just let's just cook this. Yeah, let's yeah, cook yeah. this thing and kill it, and and that's all good. So you can't make it go away, but the industry is just they're they're, they're looking the looking other, other way. They're yeah. looking the other way. Yeah. And it's too bad. Uh, and there's only so many lifetime achievement awards some of these cats, you know, can, <laughs> you know, can get. For those that are still around. For those that right? are still so around, yeah. there's fractions of bands yep. that still play, mm-hmm. um, and it's it means a lot to uh, to give them recognition. And there's more um, uh, like treatments, documentaries, and things people are working on, and that's important. Um, but then there's like there's the top stuff, and then there's that that whole universe of of music that uh, d- doesn't get doesn't we don't we haven't even started that conversation. You talked about the unified funk, the united mm-hmm. funk, mm-hmm. and um, the first thing I thought of well that period seventy two to seventy six covered the arc of Stevie Wonder's greatest albums. Yep. Okay. Uh-huh. You know the inner visions. Yep. Fulfilling this mm-hmm. songs in the key of life, you know all of those things. Uh, talking book, it was like he was putting all this together, and he had the hard rock, he had the soul, he had the the jazz, he had he had and the message. And you could tell his hardest messages were on his singles, and those were the funk singles. Yeah. So he he, he front loaded funk right. in what he did, and it seemed to me everybody else. Was following that formula, so you know the the Blackbirds and uh, you know um, let's see who else was it Rufus and Shaka Khan mm-hmm, right and, and uh, <laughs> wow, Grand Black Central Bruce. Station and everybody Station. was just you know they were mixing these styles together. Some of them had church roots, some of them had mm-hmm. you know uh, rock roots, some yeah. of them had uh, jazz chops and everything, and then they put a funk single up front. You know, to let everybody know, you know, we, we got this, but then we can speak to all these other things. And that was a high standard to to meet. And they they had the freedom at that time to meet it. And I like I said, there's no there's almost no conversation about this. And I found one article in Ebony magazine that was, you know, the kind of bougie you know, upscale mm-hmm. Negro magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and but in 1978, it's a, a cover story on the super groups. And it had a picture of Maurice White, mm-hmm. Shaka Khan, mm-hmm. and Bootsy on uh, the cover. Wow. And this writer kind of uh, compared them to like the, the, the minstrels, not the minstrel show from America, but right, in, gotcha. in the medieval yeah. minstrel, who were these Dang. traveling musicians who yeah. would who would dazzle people as they went around mm-hmm. Europe. I'm like, okay, guy, whatever you want to say. <laughs> but he was talking about how they were blowing up tradition because they had so many electronics and yet they had so many traditional techniques all at once and they were redefining black music and the tradition. I'm like, 
Well, all right. <laughs> Let's get more into it. Let's yeah. talk about that. Let's have a big discussion about, you know, what does it mean to claim all of our music? What mm -hmm. is, you know, what are we trying to do? How does this work? And poof, that was that was basically that it. Was it. And the industry, you know, disco, came, you know, other other distractions came along, yeah. And you know, things kind of faded, but the funk hasn't faded. It has to be reinforced. I'm gonna read a I'm gonna read a quote from Rick that uh, really impressed me, uh, Jay. He was so talking about uh, why modern dance music, why it uses funk music so much. Mm -hmm. Another reason why much of modern dance music is so heavily laden with funk samples is that the riffs were invented by playing funk in the 1970s were created by bands, bands, mm -hmm. in an interactive process that cannot be duplicated with digital equipment. And True. then what he identifies, he identifies how the funk works. And this was very helpful to me as a musician because I was playing kind of funky things, but I never really thought about it. Mm -hmm. So there's like a give and take with uh, the work that Ricky does and the work that musicians do. So as far as he calls it, the tendencies of funk, okay. the tendencies of funk. Number one is the principle of rhythmic and implied metrical contrast. So like contract, we could talk about that, but you got the one and then you got things working against the one to totally. give it that tension. Yeah, yeah. It makes it sound funky, makes you move your body. The counterpoint. There's that approach to singing and playing in a percussive manner. So more like the rhythm of your voice yeah, than yeah, just yeah, emphasizing yeah. the melody. Antiphony, the concept of antiphony, which is we call call and response. Uh -huh. Somebody says that, get on up, get say into it, it, you know, say it loud, you mm -hmm. know, sex machine, all Sometimes that. Sometimes the horns will respond. Horns, yeah. cold sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High density of musical events. I like how you say that. I love how he puts it. High density of musical events in a short time frame. So any Funkadelic record or Parliament record is a great example of that. Just so many things. You put it on in headphones, you can't believe the different yeah. things going on, and you could hear each one. Uh, and then also the last one, and this is really important, and he incorporates, this is part of the music making, the actual making of the music, not an addition, but part of it. Physical body motion is mm. part of the music no making. Doubt. So the way uh, the musicians actually, they're, they're interfacing with yeah. their body and the yeah. audience. That's um, true. To me, and, uh, and he also identifies 1965 Papa's Got a Brand New Bag as kind of like the quintessential like first funk record um i'm just really impressed with when you break things down like that it just helps me so much as like a musician like thinking about how this is working and i always think i thought of it first when you say it and i always go oh i knew that you know but you're the one that's like bringing it to mind like making it cohere like that well i was just uh going by the evidence that was there right and I, I could feel that, and a, a lot of those terms were taken from that that same music professor that I was telling you about, mm -hmm. Ollie Wilson. Okay. And he referred to that as the heterogeneous sound ideal. In, in, <laughs> wow, in heterogeneous sound ideal. I like, like well, that. Go ahead. Well, let me put some. Let me put some <laughs> Does that fit on a shirt? Let me put some spank on. Yeah, so I had to bust a rhyme on the heterogeneous <laughs> sound ideal. Yeah, something you could feel. I don't know. But um, so I, I went with that. And then the Papa's got a brand new bag. I wasn't sure. I remember I had a co-host named Funky Man. And we sat down one oh, I day. Know Funky Funky Man, yeah. yeah, we sat down one day. And said, okay, now let's find the first funk record. Come on, let's break it. Is it this one? Is it Cold Sweat? Is it Boo? And we sort of leaned towards Papa's got a brand new bag because it had a different, <laughs> different <laughs> kick to it. It had a yeah, different yeah, emphasis yeah. in there. Yeah. It wasn't the way we know and love funk from mm -hmm. our era. But it seemed like it. And then in 1993, I had a chance to interview James Brown. It oh, was wow. a phone interview. And this was like 
after his that that prison thing okay. and he had the, right, right, right. and then he had a big pay-per-view and he had all he had this sort of last that wasn't last he kept on going mm-hmm. but he had this big thing and then he put out a record that nobody wanted nobody likes and it's it just it wasn't very good and he 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 was indignant about that and he was probably he was probably probably pissed off that somebody from college radio wanted to talk to him because he was james brown right right and i i I think about that a lot because he was in a bad mood i remember when the the industry uh, abandoned George Clinton because mm-hmm. after Atomic Dog, they didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. They said, you just too old. You just, we don't need yeah. old, crazy-looking guys like you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so George didn't care. He did the college radio road trip, yep. and he went to different towns and kicked it at college that's when i met george clinton because mm-hmm. he had come to the radio station at calex radio okay. in this basement up there and yeah. in, uh, in berkeley and um and so george's approach was different james was just sort of in a bad mood the whole conversation <laughs> but it got him talking mess mm-hmm. and i was you know because i had to ask him other things first i said how do you feel about uh black radio today and he's like well you know i used to tell them to be black they didn't want to be black before until i had to tell them to do that so he was he was all in this he was fired up so i said okay i got him softened softened the blow all right so let me know about the funk tell me about the funk how did that happen when it come about he said papa's got a brand new bag and i was like because I wasn't sure, because they always say Cold Sweat. Oh, so he other called song. Right. He called out, he said, that was a turnaround song. Because I put the music on the one and the three as opposed to being on the two and the four. Mm-hmm. And then I took gospel and jazz and defied all the laws. And he said, if I play, you know, eight bars or nine or ten, I play nine or ten uh, as long as I felt the people grooving. That's where extended play comes from. I was like, what? Well, damn, break it all the way down. And so he broke it all the way down. And then you unpack more of that. uh, When you put it on the one, most of our Western music, from the hymns that were brought here that we started to write our blues songs, Mm -hmm. and we sort of have these songs that are in these kind of storytelling, you know, verses that are sort of pairs, sort of, you know, you say it this way and you come back today. And they they sort of so they sort of have a balance to them. But if you break the 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 first bar up and you hit it hard, you don't ex- you're not you you're not ready for the you don't you're not waiting for the conclusion of the story. You just it keeps yeah. on going. Yeah. And so it so by hitting it on the one it you no longer worried about uh the verse verse chorus verse verse right. that formula That's is just point. out. Yeah. Right. So he just extend he created this extended play which essentially is Africanizing the music, you're taking it away from this Western construct of a storytelling with this beginning, middle, mm-hmm. chorus. Mm-hmm. He 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 redid that. Yeah, and I mean everybody does different things, but what happened was everybody followed James. Everybody understood this is how you do it. You can you can tell a story in a in a few verses, but then you extend it. You keep it going. You let it go, and that's really how and why the funk changed everything because it worked with your expectations of a song but then it just 
that's the blew the groove point, out. Man. That, 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 I never thought about it like that. That mm-hmm. it changed, it reorganized your expectation instead of here's the verse, the chorus, the bridge, and stuff. It's like right. well, as long as the one's there, we could kind of just do whatever. You're gonna accept it as long as the one is there. Yeah, because it brings you back. Yeah, it brings you back to something else. Yeah. You're not no matter how back. weird or no, no matter how weird. And James kept telling all his musicians that he said, "Do whatever you want, as long as you come back on the one." Right. <laughs> I was like, okay, and and again, he was in the, you know, he was like in the lab, like Nikolai Tesla working with electricity. Mm-hmm. He was right. in this lab doing what nobody else was doing. Yeah, right. right. And so the, 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 the folks came with him, just sort of. By accident, so yes, boss, you know, Mr. Brown, this is what mm-hmm. we got to do. Uh, and then they started to realize that this other formula uh, has created space for us to do this, these things because most of them were uh, musicians, right? right. Yep. And they weren't necessarily practitioners of groove, but they he he turned them into that, right? That I whole, read uh, Fred Wesley's autobiography. He had a real hard time wrapping his head around it at first, almost yeah. like embarrassed, like what he was asking him to do. But mm-hmm. then he figured it out. Yeah. yeah, and he's yeah he's in that book. He's still ambivalent yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yet, yeah, I realized we made some legendary music too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of what happened. And um, that snobby jazz cat can't get it out. Of- <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he's such a warm and beautiful guy. But yeah, he had. He still. He. he yeah, and so. Yeah, a snobby jazz person could could hear Fred is one of them, but yet he he loves the funk yeah. too. As, yeah, he you know, loves the funk. I mean, there's a few people, you know, that, that just some some people can inhabit more than one box, mm-hmm. and that's how I I see Fred and a, a lot of Me those too. guys, Maceo and them, they can they can inhabit both, no and, then, and it's it's organic to them. And he wrote about that. He, he yep. said something in there. He said uh, funk and jazz. Uh, I realized are basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just that jazz is more tuned into the cerebral side. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's more intricate and more technical and, and, and you appreciate that. And funk is more for the booty shaking listener and it emphasizes the hard down beats and the boom boom boom. And he, he broke he broke it down like only a technician, a master yeah. could. But and he was just sort of matter-of-factly laying out how yeah. they are, you know, the same same process, just a different emphasis, right? And because, you know, they keep yeah. categorizing, you know, well, the school of jazz is over here. Yeah, and right. you people are just, we don't even have a school for funk. Right. You just do that. <laughs> you just do so, that. But, but <laughs> no. It's, that it's one all... is hypnotizing. <laughs> you you know? yeah, it is. It, I mean, you can ask. Yeah, we love it. You can we ask for it. for money, for food, whatever. When you got that crowd hypnotized, and they'll just throw it up there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they do. They get hypnotized. So um, we're gonna we're gonna have a little bit of a jam section. I want to talk to you about your book, Party Music, because I was blown away by that book. Uh, we're gonna bring in Monster and Dub Esquire. The fucking us gonna play a little music for you. Uh, this is a team up called Funk Junkie. You could check it out. This is a kind of a Live remix, Funk Junkie is on the album Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, which was added as Ricky Vincent's, one of Ricky Vincent's top 25 albums that come out in the last 25 years. He added us to the reissue of Funk. We're very proud of that. That's a very proud moment for me personally, and I'm very proud of Jay Stone for that. And we're going to be working with Ricky Vincent musically in the future too. This is the song Funk Junkie. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Ricky some more. Keep it there. 
this motherfucker up and set you free.
Jay Stone dumbing out over there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So now I want to talk about talk about a book that I just read recently. Actually, is the book Party Music, which I really like. So Party Music, the great double entendre. Basically, Party Music as in party, but also as the Black Panther Party. And um, your your mom was a Panther, which I didn't know. Your mother, uh, Tony. Yeah, she was. Yeah, you know, she didn't talk about it much, and she is just now revealing some of the you know ins and outs of what happened you know sometimes you just you now talk, reviewing yeah mm-hmm. and, you know she's like talking about this that the other and you know elders left us at the duh, duh, duh. I was like, wait a minute what because it just pops up right as as like some of the history but she was there early on as a um she was in the uh uh, they had a, a study groups where they were studying Marxism, mm-hmm. and so they had wow, that's a, heavy. a group of of these women, these young moms. My brother called them the Mommunists. <laughs> they would they would have these little gatherings, and Huey and Bobby and elders and these people would come through. Wow! And I remember these were on oh Thursday god. nights at the house. Oh my god! And, at your house, and these are you know the grownups were coming, and you know, and so I didn't really. Right, recognize them or know them, but uh, you know they all knew Tony. And then um, I spent a year in New York in 1968, and uh, didn't quite understand that my mom thought we were all going to wind up in Cuba, and it just the wow. whole thing is a whole wow. story that had <laughs> had to do with uh, heavy. Eldridge. In exile and all these things yeah, were going whole... on, and then there was a sweep of the of the Panther leadership in New York mm-hmm. in the spring of 1969. They're called the Panther 21, and you could read about it. And mm-hmm. Afeni Shakur was one of them. Uh, Tupac's mother, Tupac's mom, and wow. she got out, or they 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 dropped charges in uh, 1971, two weeks before Afeni had Tupac. So anyway, so all this stuff is, in, and my mom was there, and she told me a story that I you know, never brought it up. She used to hang with this woman named Yuri Kochiyama, and Yuri Kochiyama was uh, a confidant of Malcolm X. And if you look at pictures of Malcolm on the day he was shot, there's this Asian woman holding his head mm. in the picture. That's Yuri Kochiyama. Oh, okay. And she's a radical woman. And... Um, she was, and now they write about her because she was an ally. She was, you know, Asian American, mm-hmm. and she was no joke. And my mom and her used to hang out there. And they, she said, the party leadership was sent to this event. Um, they were all supposed to be at this at this talk one night. And my mom and Yuri were like, "This guy, we don't we don't like." It, it was supposed. It was, Ron Karenga was at this talk, and if you unpack the book, Ron Karenga was not a friend of the Panthers, but they were supposed to be there. And they, were, they looked at each other and said, let's get out of here. And they left. And that night, the police came and raided everybody that was at that talk, and that was the New York 21. Whoa. Could have been the New York 23. Right. Uh, I was like, man. And, you know, that's amazing. And my mom just sort of, ta- she just tossed it out the side. wasn't even talking about what we were talking about. Right. Said, yeah, you know, Yuri and I, you know, we almost got, you know, but we didn't like that guy, so we left Mom, do you know how that's some? <laughs> so significant. Because I was trying to find out what we were doing 
I spent my second grade at PS29 in Brooklyn. Ooh, I hated that school. Anyway, <laughs> it was all right. It, I mean, I learned about New York yeah. as a kid. You know, totally. when they talk about, you know, the kids came up with hip hop and da da da, da. I can understand when the, when the floor is concrete, the playgrounds are concrete, everything is concrete, and then there's that beat. You know, right. I could get that. You know, yeah, I understood. Right, got you. When you get the uh, atmosphere and the geography. So, so I learned yeah. about that stuff. Um, but at, in in terms of you know the the revolutionary moment, you know, I kind of just sort of was a kid as it passed passed me by. And then my mom, she was a part of the Third World Women's Alliance, and that was this a group of women of color activists in the Bay Area, and they had a New York. They were originally a New York chapter, and they had a, a Bay Area chapter. So we was tied with the American Indian Movement, with these uh, uh, farm workers, great boycott protests, and the International Hotel, which was a big issue in San Francisco with uh, Filipino veterans um, deserving uh, a place to live. So we were tied into all these things. That's why I wound up in ethnic studies as a as a major in college because I was like, this is sort of organically what my experience has been. Mm -hmm. uh, and so so she did all that. But all the um, former Panthers knew of Tony and Linda Burnham and Margot Dashiell and a, and a few of these other um, activist Marxist women that um, were doing stuff early on and then they kind of put the Third World Women's Alliance together in the seventies and did their work. So all these, so so when I talk to Emery Douglas or David Hilliard or some of the leaders of the Panthers, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember Tony. They don't really go on and on, right, but they right. remember Tony wow. was one of those serious, one of those sisters. Of, <laughs> you know, wow. but, shout uh, out to Tony, man. You know, I was really impressed with the conceit of this book, or the concept of it. Um, I'm going to say for you guys watching this podcast, I'm going to say a lot of stuff and then we're going to unpack it. So basically what Ricky did is he wrote a book about the Lumpen, mm -hmm. which is the Black Panthers group. The Black Panthers had a group and they were a funky group. Uh, they would sing, uh, basically they would play popular songs where there's Temptations or Sly and the Family Stone and they would change the lyrics to make it more political. Um, you found out about this group from Boots Riley from The Coup. We're going to break this all down. And then you found a recording of a great live performance of this group. He used this live performance. He used each song he made like a chapter. Mm -hmm. And he talked about just all the influence of different artists that kind of make up, you know, like the, like the song was a microcosm for all this other stuff. So right. I, just, I thought he made an amazing book where he discussed um, talking about political stuff and uprising and revolutionizing, but also trying to make some money as a musician, which we've been talking about a lot already. So one thing that really, uh, first of all, when did that first come together, that concept for the book, or you hit you like, this is how I should do the book, or did somebody else suggest it to you? Well, it began when... It was kind of uh, daunting to put it all together. It was, it was bananas. But um, I went back to graduate school because the funk oh. book was making noise, but then I'd get around academics who were like, well, you know, you have to have an academic publisher to be, to be, to be, <laughs> right, to right, be right, credible. Right. And I'm like, well, I got credit in a different place, y'all. Yeah. Well, I got credit. But, but I did want to uh, tighten up, you know, what I was doing. And I was able to get back into graduate school and work with uh, this 
legendary professor Ron Takaki. And I know who that is. I've read a couple of his books. Yeah, he's a great he's guy. Genius. He's a brilliant dude. Wow, okay. And and you know, I, I and he knew me as an undergrad. I come back as a grad, say, Hey Rick, da, da, da. and and the first day or early in the in the graduate class, he would say, You need to formulate a question. Just a question, a fundamental question that will drive you all the way through the beginning to the end of what you do. And I'm like, okay, let me work on a question. What am I really thinking about? Especially the music and the message that's in the music all the time. Mm -hmm. And and I knew about the message in the music. I felt like of the, of the people in this, I'm one of the only people that knows the message in all this black music, you know, not just Billie Holiday and uh, Sam Cooke and, and right. maybe Nina Simone, because like right. I said, the, the music journalism stopped at the end of the 60s. Right. And so they don't necessarily know about Chocolate City or, uh, you know, maybe say it loud, but they don't necessarily know Funky President. Right. They don't even know the, the payback or what does that right, mean. Right. So all this other stuff. And um, so I said, well, I could, I could do the message in the music. And so, and I knew the, the history, or it wasn't hard for me to reconstruct the history of the of the of the of the movement, yeah. Because I was I was there. Um, so what's the question? I and mean, the question boiled down to, which came first, uh, the music, or the movement? The music mm. about these things, that or, was the or, the, or the events, mm -hmm. or, the, or the move. Mm -hmm. And doing the research, th that answer came pretty quick. But I kept on going, and I remember I was reading uh, Nina Simone's autobiography. It's called uh, I Put a Spell on You. If highly recommend. I got to pick that up. Okay. And she talks about um, the Birmingham bombing, the four little girls. Mm -hmm. And she said, I was so mad I wanted to kill somebody. And I didn't know what to do with this energy. So I went upstairs and this song wrote itself called Mississippi Goddamn, which is mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the angriest songs of that era. Okay, and it's sort of an outlier. And there's nothing like what she wrote right there, and and so it was the 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 thing that happened that triggered her to make this song, which focused everybody else's energy in how outrageous you know the mm -hmm. South, the South, the whole thing was. And as I as I go on, I learned that Sam Cooke went through some drama. But they wouldn't let him in in the theater. They wouldn't let him in the hotel. He's like, I'm Sam. Cook. So, right. well, you just don't. so you not, and that's why you. They told me don't come around, and the change is gonna come, mm. right? So mm. these events are right. triggering the music, right. but then the music focuses the all of this stuff that everybody else picks up on and lives and everything Amazing. else, and so it kept going. You know, so that that sort of lined up, and I'm like, well. I'm around the Black Panther Party. How did the, you know, the events and the music, you know, connect? Um, and obviously, we know uh, the Black Panther Party began in um, the fall of 1966, right? With uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale coming up with a plan initially, really to address police brutality on the streets of Oakland. Right. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're going to take this on and we're going to show our community how we can do it on our own terms. We're not asking for a police commission this. We're not asking for reform that. We are going to patrol the police ourselves. 
Okay. And so he said, we're going to look up the laws so we know exactly the terms of engagement mm -hmm. you know, with law enforcement, blah, blah, blah. So we have a right to, to witness them. We, we can bail out anybody that the police unjustly arrest. Boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. We have all this stuff. And since every organization puts out a like a manifesto, we'll write a 10-point program 10 point how you yeah. do this. Mm -hmm. And so they just started to, to build this thing up. And then... Um, they wanted to get some more recognition, and uh, oh, they got recognition. The, the 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 state, the police union was like, these black these niggers are following us with guns. We need to outlaw the bearing of arms in California, and so uh -huh. they took up the state legislature took up, uh, you know, passing that law, right? And that's when Huey. He didn't go, but Bobby Seale and the rest went to Sacramento right. and walked into the state capitol building and demanded that you know you you don't pass this law because you're going to disarm black people, so we're at the mercy of police brutality. Blah, 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 blah. And they were spelling it all out, right? And that event, the that the media event of that mm -hmm. went worldwide. You know, it's on the cover of the London Times, totally. you know, and it's the armed Negroes invade state capital, stuff like that. <laughs> and it made people just bug, you know, and it made people want to start their own chapters and blah, 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 and all this stuff happened. And then the state responds by ruthlessly taking out Panthers right and left. That's what we saw. If you saw the film... Um, Judas and the Black oh, yeah. Messiah. Great film, yeah. Right? And that. so that was, but that kind of thing where the state gets involved to take what's yeah. happening every in every city because Panthers were in all these major cities yeah. and small towns as well. Um, and by the time all that mayhem happens, Huey and others look at this as like, you know, we're losing touch because the Panthers become, you know, um, sort of seen as this militant this militia this underground this thing and Hughes like well, we want to tie ourselves to the community right we, we don't want to just be this mysterious outlying group you know this, right. this guerrilla faction and they're that that's not a terrible thing but he didn't want that to be all with the pan mm -hmm. and so they started these directives to uh, build the community, and so one of them was the Breakfast for Children program. For children, so we right. get people go to the stores and say, "You have stuff that isn't spoiled that you could give us, right?" Because I've gone to the store and buy some some eggs that they're not spoiled, but I'm not buying those because they're <laughs> day later than the others. Yeah. So I mean, they knew that, and so they were throwing this food away, and so they would give, and so all across the country, uh, the Black Panthers and a lot of allies. You didn't have to be a Panther member to come in and fry up some eggs and you know and make breakfast for these kids. And you're showing the community one that you can do it, two that the state is abandoning your children by not giving this resource when they have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. And so it was all this, stuff. and it was a way for people that aren't Panthers. I found out Natalie Cole. Worked at the Breakfast for Children for programs. Wow. I was surprised oh. Shaka Khan was a Panther. Shaka Khan was all up in the Chicago Black Panthers. Wow. And she, I mean, her name, she was Yvette Marie Stevens. Right, right. But, Never put that together before. But, but yeah. no, she she yeah. got, she was in the Afro Arts Theater, and that was this black cultural center. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of, uh, of that black conscious activity 
going out. Son Ra was out there. There's right, two of the yeah. other heavy jazz folks were out there. Maurice White, right. Earth, Wind, and Fire. All these groups were, you know, getting all their getting their black on, basically. So everybody in that generation was was doing these things. But and the Panthers gave folks an opportunity to contribute that way. And so they were doing these community service things, right? They were driving, uh, they had the elders, uh, th- they were driving people to prison to visit their, their loved ones. Right. They, they had all these services. And around this time, they had an infrastructure and, and, uh, and Emory Douglas was the minister of culture. He would design a lot of the stuff that's in their, the weekly paper, okay. right? The Panther paper. And he heard these brothers, and every week the Panther paper had to get printed, sorted, and shipped across the country and around the world. And that, that was wow. a, a big breadwinner. For, and there was some, they borrowed the warehouse of some other uh, kind of, you know, hippie rag magazine. And they said, Huey, here's the key. Do, you know, just use, use the stuff, bring your ink. You can make the, make the paper. And wow. that was part of our wow. ties, the Panthers' ties to the community that, wow. that gave them the chance. And But all these people came. And so volunteers, you didn't have to be a Panther, but they had a core of workers. And doing the work and stacking the Navy, he's like, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. Why do you can't tell you what to do? And they would make up different rock, and they would sing. Right. And, and they identify, and, and um, Emory Douglas identified these four cats that were like, they could harmonize. And that's what people did back in the day. Instead right. of busting rhymes, they would harmonize together. Yeah. Like working, they would, doing they would hit, hit yeah. notes and, True. yeah, we could hit that note. <laughs> and the thing is, and so he said, well, you guys need to put a band together so that when we have these community events, you know, you oh, guys yeah. can hit them. Kind of like a rec- recruitment vehicle, you said. It right? was a recruitment vehicle, and but it was tied to this sort of, you know, second phase of the Panthers, which was rekindling or rebuilding their community ties. And I mean, what ties it to, food ties it to the community, yeah, but Mm -hmm. music is a tie to the community. And that's exactly what uh, the group, what the Lumpen were about. Uh, The name was taken from the Lumpen proletariat. Proletariat, It was a a Marxist term for the, the forgotten of the underclass. So like lower than proletariat, right? The Even- proletariat is, is the working class uh, who, you know, has to do what we call the, uh, you know, the, the, the labor now that uh, gets, we use the word for where, you know, they, they put down all the people doing all the shipping and all the, mm-hmm. all the, um, you know, the necessary, uh, you know, labor in the, in the country, and people realize, well, wait a minute, these are the most important people in the world, and so, but that's the that's the so Marx called them the proletariat, and then he said there are these folks on the on the sides of of uh, on on the side sort of um, um, industries, and that's the pimps and and hustlers and drug dealers and all of these people who have no role in society, according to him, right, and. And they're the forgotten people, and they're the disposed of people, and and Huey and Bobby Seale and this other writer, France Fanon. France Fanon. They understood um, that those forgotten people are a powerful group because they have nothing to lose, and if they mm-hmm. get awakened, you know, it's on. And so they identified Malcolm X as the 
quintessential lumpen proletariat. He was like the society abandoned. You know, he was, yep. it was he was below zero. It was nothing, yep. and he turned himself into somebody that changed the world. And so they saw that, and they and so they said, well, if we call ourselves this and bring people in through the music, and I said, well, what does lumpen mean? Okay, you want to know? <laughs> Come to the political education class. Boom, boom, boom. You can see why we do what we do. Da, 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 da. So it was a way to start a conversation. Um, and well, the music was a way to start the conversation because people could hear sing, them singing. People get ready. We can hear them singing. They do a version of uh, uh, old Old Man River. Oh yeah, Old Man River. <laughs> which that generation, Old Man River, was a very popular song. Right. Yeah. Even though it was done a generation or two before, mm -hmm. it was people old man. Every people heard all the vocal right. parts, but they would call it "Old Pig Nixon." They said "Old Pig Nixon," <laughs> <laughs> so they have, so, but everybody could hear what the, the way it was being sung. I said, right. "Ooh, I can get." Oh man, they clown it. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and they could see that this is where the Panthers were coming. But they pulled people in through the music. Mm -hmm. And then say, you know, if you want to join in this serious business, because we have a, a, this is our big picture of transfer. The little picture is do the work. Mm -hmm. It's not very really little, but the other picture is do the work. And, uh, and, and that's what they were doing. Now, the, there was so much turnover and trouble, let's just say, in the early 70s uh, for the Panthers that Huey kind of organized a, a sort of a third phase which right. was to let go of all the chapters across the country and bring in the trusted people back to uh the bay back to mm -hmm. oakland and 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 rebuild the party as a oakland centered party they always were but mm -hmm. to sort of not try to admit i mean they didn't ask for chapters in omaha nebraska right, and stuff right, like right, that right. but they were there but they couldn't administrate that type of thing mm -hmm. and so um they became oakland based and they ran uh bobby seal for mayor of oakland right in 73 and the thing is they had this whole network of uh, community activists so they did precinct work and they sort of reconstructed the electoral landscape of oakland and bobby seal lost by <clears throat> not that much but then the following election uh, a black man named Lionel Wilson was elected mayor of Oakland, mm -hmm. really because of all the ground-level work the Panthers had done. So they were tying back into the community, but the the lumpen only lasted about a year because the the four leaders were very trusted and they were either occupied in other things, um, and three of them actually stayed through the seventies. But uh, the leader, he kind of it was time for him to. Actually, let me let me say on Mike, and we'll put a picture of them on the screen too. Who was in the Lumpen? So we're talking about founder and songwriter William Calhoun, Michael Torrance, Clark Bailey, and James Mott. You have a nice picture of the four of them nowadays in the book too, uh, or at least recently. One thing I really thought was interesting about the group, unlike other groups like like me and Jay Stone, like we kind of have a little bit of an ego. You think you're kind of like hot stuff. Uh, you want the focus to be kind of on you and what's what's coming from Lumpen were very almost like in a weird way like anonymous they were like worker bees they like they weren't even like the glamorous like big timers in the group they were just on the ground just working just doing the work working those programs you mentioned not just like practicing and getting ready for the show well when I first uh, got into this right because I didn't know about it that was the 
Boots Riley contact. Yep. I was just trying to figure out the music and the movement. And I had a conversation with Boots because Boots Riley used to um, come Shout to my to house. Boots. Boots Riley used to come to my house with his um, hard drive so he could steal all my beats. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he would come over and just plug right on in and just take whatever, whatever I had. Because mm -hmm. I was, you know, by then, 2000, I was already kind of digitizing my vinyl collection, not by hand, but get, waiting for the CDs to come out. And nice. I was writing liner notes and mm -hmm. producing a few of these CD compilations for the, for the, for, for the industry uh, back then. Um, and so that was fun. Uh, and so we had a talk, and, he's, and Boots was like, yeah, man, did you know that the, that the Black <laughs> Panthers had a band? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, man, they had a band. And blah, blah, blah. He started to tell me about this, what he knew. But then he referred me to uh, Greg Morizumi, who runs the Eastside Arts Alliance. Mm. And he connected me to uh, this guy, Jamil Calhoun, who uh, at that time had a rap group called The Fugitives, mm. who were um, like a younger, they saw themselves as a younger version of a, of a Panther group. Mm -hmm. And they had ties to David Hilliard, and, and Jamil's dad was Bill Calhoun. Ah. And so I invited The Fugitives on my show, on my radio show, and David Hilliard came down, and those guys were there. We played their music, and they played all the other message music of the day, and uh, had a good time. And Jamil put me in contact with his dad, and whoop, whoop, whoop. And when I talked to him, Calhoun's a heavy brother. He's no joke. Yeah. He, was, he was working at a at-risk youth facility in Sacramento. For, he was at-risk yeah. teenagers. Okay. And um, he's the kind of guy that could get young brothers to pay attention to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was, and so I was like, his life of service uh, continued, although he did quite a few things from one till then. Um, and so we had this conversation. And when I had this conversation with every one of them, they were like, look, I was a revolutionary. I wasn't an entertainer. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, you joined right. a party, you did before. this, you yeah. did this. So how did the band start? And he's like, well, you see, I was a revolutionary. I wasn't, I wasn't an entertainer. I wasn't doing this to entertain. We were doing this to uh, educate and, uh, and recruit for, you know, for the party. So we just, we did these songs. And I'm like, well, how did you do these songs? I was a revolutionary. <laughs> and, it and it went on with all of them. They were like wow. that because they yeah. didn't really want to be seen as, you know, as you, you didn't know, want you to put that on them. Well, they didn't want to be, you know, an, an R and B act like, you know, like Troop or somebody. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to be just a seen or connected in a generic way. Um, but then, as I got to learn, got to know them, and learn about their ties to the music scene here in 1969, there's so much happening around here. Um, they knew everybody, and. You know, they needed to get a, a band. They made a couple calls of their high school friends. Boom, they got a band. This is what everybody did. Right, yep. And um, so so that wasn't a problem. So Lenny Williams, the singer, he knew those guys. Right, I didn't realize right. that. And, you know, and they all knew each other. And see, the, the, the quiet part of it is these youngsters, these are all young black 
teenagers in the 60s and they're watching the Vietnam War. They're about to get drafted. They mm -hmm. watch the um, the uh, student, the third world strike over there at the San Francisco State in 1968. And the police are clubbing these kids trying to go to school. And they were demanding a third world college and all that. And a lot of Panthers are organizing around that. And um, the 68 Olympics, that was right, the, right, the, the track stars, that did, the two yeah. brothers that did that. Yeah, mm -hmm. the Black Power. They were, they were track stars. They were, that, was, that gold medal was the 200-meter the uh, dash, mm -hmm. okay? And that's Tommy Smith won the gold medal, and uh, John Carlos won the bronze. And, and, the, and they did the Black Power Fist, but they trained at San Jose State. And so all this was happening in, in the Bay. And so these youngsters were, were and a lot of those guys um, were at San Jose State. And they were actually trying to start a Panther chapter in San Jose. And it didn't happen, so they got called to San Francisco. And they just kept doing the work. They were just uh, respected uh, young men doing this stuff. But I, what I thought was fascinating was all four of them, as high schoolers, you know, they saw themselves as 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 singers. They said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna get in the music business." And they right. were in choir class, and they could sing, and they had the church, and, and they they knew they, they were. That's what happened in the community. It right. was young folks, and you know, some of them played you know rhythms, some of them did this, some of them mm -hmm. were singers, right? And they had that kind of that kind of persona, I mean, it's subtle, but you know, when an act puts together singers, they're all the same height, you know, they right. all have a certain kind of presence about them, and mm -hmm. da, da, da. And so quietly, uh, I think folks realize they all had the characteristics of a singing group, mm -hmm. right? But they didn't come into the Black Panther Party to sing. Right. They came right. into the Black Panther Party to commit their lives to social change, to commit their lives to a revolution, and then they started singing for the party, right? But they had the techniques, they had the skill set. Oh. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they came in, and they knew exactly how to do it and, and why it had to be done, right. why it had to be done right. And so... When when I told you that I found a tape of their performance, mm -hmm. um, and I heard them singing um, "People Get Ready," I was like, "Wait a minute! They're singing that seriously. They're singing it. They're they're, they're giving reverence to Curtis Mayfield right there, mm -hmm. and to the impressions and the whole harmonic history of our music because mm -hmm. they were doing it right. You can't just." crank you can't just grind out and and sing off key and say you're giving a tribute to to That's a true. singing tradition yeah yeah right so they respected that singing tradition even though they flipped the lyrics they said people get ready revolutions come you don't you don't need a ticket you need a loaded gun i was like Shh, <laughs> but they it was note for note just the way Curtis and those guys wow. were singing, you know, Beautiful. the train has come, you know, you don't need a ticket. I forget the rest. Uh -huh. But um, they, to me, they showed a, a level of respect that sort of permeated everything they did. I right. mean, they respected the work they were in in the party. They respected the community. They respected the traditions they were in. And they knew they wasn't going to get a penny for it. 
Yeah, right, but right. They that had these these, yeah. these these skills. And, you know, I don't know how hard it is. I mean, we always hear the jokes about musicians. Hey, can you bring your band and, and perform for us? It'll be good exposure for your band. <laughs> right. right? You know, that's, that's so tired. It's so right? tired. Cause, but they know that, you know, a musician will, will do it mm-hmm. to do it. Yep. Because they got their own set of standards it, reason it, for living yeah and it goes way back and it's beyond money but it is about money but it, so the the panthers it just happened to to not be about money because it was for the 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 cause for they're, the revolution they're kind of like the, almost the most punk rock group of all time too when i was reading it because like the police were attending their shows they did yeah. a performance at san quentin with what curtis mayfield muhammad ali was there and they got shut down like almost immediately they pulled the plug they did a song called revolution is the only solution wow. and they said no <laughs> they played that at san quentin they played it at san they Qu- tried they, to play they it. played a couple verses <laughs> and then they, they shut it down um because there were other acts there yes. but it was oh. yeah because they were a fully wow. formed gr- i mean they looked and sounded like a like a regular rhythm and blues group right right and there's yep. some pictures of them they got the puffy shirts like the temptations yeah. and all wow. that and you know and i finally got them to talk about their act you know how they would run on stage and and do the steps the way r&b acts would do oh wow because they knew how to do that kind right. of thing but then they would you know like perform a skit about police brutality and taking it mm. back to the pigs and that type of thing yeah. so they they were Putting the Panthers' ideology into a rhythm and blues show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So wow. Okay, there's a couple quotes from this amazing book. I highly recommend everybody needs to read it. And I want to go over it because I was just so impressed by them, and they they really made me think. Um, one you alluded to earlier, and I just want to circle back to it really very early in that conversation. You said uh, Jimmy, we're talking about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix himself was a radical black a living example for some of what a completely liberated black man could be. What do you, what do you mean by that? Or could you expand on that? Because I, I, I agree, by the way, but it's so hard to explain that to people because like, he's so ahead of his time. I know. Um, but just looking at him, it, the thing is, if you, you have to go big picture and say, well, was there any other black people that looked like him before him? Right. And he was a, he was a fully formed, liberated black man. Okay. Um, and the thing was, he, his story, you know, began in Seattle and then he traveled the country as a broke rhythm and blues side, side musician, right? Which is, which is paying dues, right? That's dues. Mm -hmm. And he wound up in New York and he would do other gigs and he had a, a little funky trio of his own. Uh, when he got discovered mm-hmm. in the Greenwich Village, mm-hmm. right? And then so he wound up in London um, and was able to do the mod thing and and, and the, the hair grow out right. and do everything. And then he was exposed to America. He was on the road, I think, the Summer of Love in uh, 1967. He came to the Monterey Pop Festival. Right. And that was uh, where the Who were supposed to be headliners. And the Who said, "We've seen this guy. We're not coming after him." <laughs> right. Wow. And so, and they had to convince him because these people hadn't seen him. And so the Who did their bit and smashed their guitars like they do. Right. And then Jimmy came on after the Who, 
and uh, did this whole wild set and then laid his guitar down and put some lighter fluid on it, <laughs> set that thing ablaze. And blah, blah, blah. But he had already set it ablaze by playing. Right, right, um, right. And, but the thing is, he wasn't trying to pretend or imitate or fake anything. He was, go he was being him. And that in, a, in and of itself is a radical thing. Okay, and it's it's funny because sometimes it's it's cool looking at some of these black power activists, you know, like Stokely Carmichael and H. Right. Rap Brown, and there's some cool looking brothers. Yeah. And as cool as they were, it was the work that made them cool, right? To me. Mm -hmm. And then when you see a, a cat like Jimmy, he's not trying to be like anybody else, but then his body of work, you know, makes him. You can tell he's free. Right, because right, he's right, like, you, you know, I'm gonna take this song. There's about four bars you're gonna get that you're gonna understand, and the rest, <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> take you right. where I want to go, and right. it's up to you to deal with it. So, you know, he he just had a different presence about it. And then, as Black Power emerges, people realize that you know Jimmy's talking to these black. Panthers in 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 room. Mm -hmm. You know what are we supposed to do? You know, are they going to hurt him? And say, well, he's having a good conversation. He's laughing. He's he's hanging with him. Right, right. And it turns out, you know, the the founders of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party went to high school with Jimmy, and so he knew them. And he wrote, and so every town that you know there was, uh, you know, a, a black radical moment. He was down with that. He was, you know, and you can hear it in the songs. There's. Uh, Jimmy plays Berkeley. That's mm -hmm. a famous record. He said, "I, I want to give a, 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 I don't think that you shout out. He said, I want to give you know this one is for the People's Park and the Black Panthers." Wow. Blah, blah, blah. He'll yep. say that you yep. know. So mm -hmm. he was, he didn't have to fake it because right. he rolled with with the people. Um, but you know the 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 rock and roll kind of history makers try to first of all deracialize Jimmy and just say, well he's a free spirit and we love him and we <laughs> right, don't have right, to right. we don't have to love his blackness, but we love him. Right. Oh, okay. So when it came time to really telling this story, it was like, wait, really? Jimmy was like he was down with the with the black militants? What does that mean? How is how can you do that? you know, why can't you accept that some black people are already free? Mm -hmm. right? uh. Already free, got it. Yeah. And and that's how we function in this in, in this world till his till his last breath, that's really. Right. One thing oh, that's heavy. One thing you said that really took me back because you just like broke it down. There's like a, well, it's the revolutionary, the person that's out there putting their life on the line, regardless of race or background or time. And then there's the musician, and they kind of inspire each other. And you talk about that relationship. I thought it was like pretty interesting. You're saying. Um, at some point, it is ridiculous to speak of an artist simply rolling over in a loft, pending some standards of indignation, while others are risking their lives nightly with police mandates to harass and kill them with impunity. Yet, at some level, there's a common motivation between the artist and the activist, between the radical artist and the revolution fi revolutionary fighter that moves each forward toward a change that may or may not come. I just thought that was so interesting because it's like um, talking about the right, you know, just somebody hanging out, like you hang out in your apartment, working out your new chords, working right. out a new song. But it, and then it could, it could inspire somebody that would put their life on the line, but maybe they can't say something like that. Right. And it's we, crazy. We use, 
different languages to communicate, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're stuck with this language that, that we're in, the English language. And, but when we start talking about the sort of corporate media language where we, we, we exist in, there's so many places and, and things we can't really say. We're not even allowed to think about. Yeah. Right. And, um, and for the longest time, it was the, the musician and the artist that makes you think about things where the boundaries aren't there any mm-hmm. longer. And, uh, and you know, what, what, we, what do we think of activists? We think of activists as people that are pushing against these boundaries. And these are, they're like, like realistic boundaries. They're tangible yeah. walls, really, and laws and things like that. And, and they're pushing against boundaries. Well, that's what artists are doing. They're, mm-hmm. they're pushing against boundaries that are constructed you know, for us to, to, to contain what we think so we don't resist and rebel, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a common goal and a common approach, and it, it takes everybody, and that's what we're realizing. Because, you know, there's a lot of interest in... They don't say the 60s anymore, but in the movement, because mm-hmm. it kind of overlapped at the end of the 60s and into the 70s and yeah. what the hell happened. Uh, but people realized that was like the moment when it was really getting flipped. Okay. And, you know, people have tried, you know, the democratic process and they've tried these <laughs> other things and, and, you know, there's these liberal mandates and diversity and inclusion and, you know, let's do this and let's try that. And somebody telling you, you know, what to try as opposed to you realizing big picture, you mm-hmm. know, what to think, mm-hmm. uh, which is bigger than somebody telling you what, totally. to, what mm-hmm. to think. And we, we're not at that, we're not getting, we're not having that conversation anymore. Okay, and so the beginning of that uh, party music book talks about how there was a time when there was revolution in the air, okay, and people were thinking about that, and they were thinking about the the Marxists that were saying this, and you always had black nationalists saying these things that, you know, maybe you agree, maybe you didn't, but they were always there, Mm -hmm. right, and they were like, there's a whole different way to envision uh, being alive here, and folks were engaging in that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we don't do now. We don't really, and we don't know how to really kind of set up these larger conversations. We we're not going to have conversations about Marxism around here, <laughs> oh, or we're not going to have conversations about black nationalism right. either. No. But um, the absence of a conversation about black nationalism leads to a whole lot of confusion and chaos. Mm -hmm. And when there is uh, a very prominent notion of black nationalism around, all of a sudden, when there's a movement around, all the other groups uh, are engaged in movements also. The women's movement, LGBTQ, everybody Mm -hmm. is is in action when there's a black movement in action. When there isn't a black movement, then you have this white supremacy nonsense like we have right now. What, what's tied in with that, because I think a lot of stuff you were talking in about in your book, especially towards the end, ties in with what's going on in the world now, even though this came out in 2013, I believe. You asked the question, what happened to soul? A case can be made that soul music survived as long as there was a movement in place to give the music social meaning. 
So break that down because I think that's heavy. I like that. Well, I remember just back in the day going, w w where are those songs? Yeah, yeah. And um, a friend of mine uh, used to, his all-time favorite song was uh, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Nose, Wake Up Everybody. Mm -hmm. Wake up everybody, everybody, make the old people well. <laughs> da, 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 da. And I was like, you know, that's a perfect song. It's perfect. It's melodically perfect. It's got this flow. The mm -hmm. message is perfect. Yeah. He ad-libs. He has this free, mm -hmm. free style, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like save the babies. You could. That's right. You believed, him. Mm -hmm. yeah. you believed him. You yeah. believed him. Um why couldn't you say the same thing in 1978 or 79 or 88 and 89? And um, where did it go? Did the sentiment disappear? Was somebody saying, um, boys, we don't need that kind of song anymore. The market research shows that it's yeah, not popular. Right, right, blah, 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 blah. Right. So there were outsiders saying that. Um, the late 70s was a, a different time politically for a lot of people, economically for a lot of people. and But it was really when there was a lot of uh, silencing happening of these kind of other narratives that could maybe uh, awaken people, could maybe keep people thinking, keep people going. Um, and in the 80s, 80s was Ronald Reagan. 80s was was a lockdown. They shut down the civil rights movement. It shut down a lot of programs that were established before, um, and people were in a in a stark situation. And there was a lot of uh, there was a despair in the early 80s. I yeah. remember when John Lennon was killed. Yeah, there was like, oh no, an era was over. Yeah, and um, it it was just a, it was a tough it was a troubling time. But then hip hop shows up, and I remember Run DMC saying, "It's like that, and that's the way it is." And I said, "Oh man, hope is over, but it's like we got that bump. Right. At least they bringing a hope to that. Right. You know, we got that message. So you know, at least hip hop revitalized that kind of no nonsense thing mm -hmm. at the beginning. Yeah, you know, and but then that got." kind of locked down yeah again. fully locked down and so you know, and so what can he do but we're still going to be doing it the thing is we, we're not it doesn't get all the way broadcast to the top anymore right yeah. we all doing it on a uh, on these other levels yeah yeah and it comes but i think it's still going to linger like um you know uh that last Funkanauts album. I think oh, more yeah. people will be more paying attention. It keeps coming. <laughs> you know, it keeps you know, breathing down your neck. You know, no doubt. Like, whoa. So I mean, so th some things are going to happen right away, and some things just going to seep in. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and that's where that's where we're at. The but the collective was the collective needs of the people are always liable to o overwhelm the the apparatus of control and confusion. You know, you never know. Well, heavy, man. And that's, I think that's a beautiful place for us to wrap up. I guess the first part of our conversation, we're going to have to talk to Ricky again. Um, dude, thank you so much for coming here. Thanks for giving us your time. Let us pick your brain. 
Um, it's just an honor to have you here. You're getting ready to go do uh, t- talk about your vinyl class. You're going to go dig with some crate, <laughs> dig through some crates with some uh, students. Yeah, well, um, I teach at the California College of the Arts as well as other places, oh, and nice. uh, and um, I don't know how and why it came about. Well, actually, it came about because they asked all of the faculty to to do an exhibit years mm-hmm. about five years ago mm-hmm. of their own work, and I said, "Well, what's my work?" Well, my work is vinyl. That's my work. <laughs> I got all these records up on my wall, and then I said, "Well, let me put my vinyl collection on the wall in the in the, in the exhibit hall and yeah, treat nice. treat this soul funk experience as the historical artifact that it is." Nice. And I mean, it was a trip to even come up with that. To like, wait a minute, these are just my collection, but it is an artifact now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I uh, brought my friend Otis Jones, who does a lot of, um, he does record swaps mm-hmm. and stuff, and um, and you know he you know, helped me work through and we laid the stuff out in a kind of pyramid design nice. and I brought my Otis. old turntable and my old speakers from the 70s that still still work yeah right? nice. all that stuff still work and so i did that and i was like you know this vinyl is a thing and then i and i had known this you go to the record store and you know there was a time when it was all vinyl then they sold the ball the vinyl away and it was all cds mm-hmm. right and now the big stores like amoeba are a mix right right you don't have you know your, your CDs up and the and the and the vinyl below and that type of thing, and I was like, well, you know, I could teach this whole this thing. This is another way to teach the funk. So let me get in there and teach this. And I've been always trying to unpack the life of a DJ, mm-hmm. of a of a you know a club DJ that's busy collecting records and mixing them, uh-huh. right? And so, but there's there's multiple worlds. There's audiophiles. There are folks that just love collecting records. They love to collect like the original pressing of yep. a Bob Dylan, this, that, and the mm-hmm, other, yeah. and boom, boom, boom. And there's that whole world. And it has its own folklore and a lot of literature about it. And then there's DJ life. And DJ life can be all kinds of things, but it's all about the beat. It's mm-hmm. all about, you know, what's going to keep this beat. And I don't care if it's like country music, if it's right. some other little thing, you know, if it fits in the beat, I can make, you know, I can make it. And so that's a, that's a, a, a different <laughs> existence right there. Mm-hmm. And then for the art, students it's like we're going to design some album art and we're going to nice you know we're going to study how this was done i don't know if they're ready for pedro bell's artwork know. <laughs> you know that's kind of like here's some advanced studies for y'all <laughs> right. for the paradigm shifter no doubt. pedro bell but uh it's just a way to open that up because people beautiful, man. people get something out of the out of the 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 process of playing music right. on vinyl no doubt you know yes it's almost and then you start to read it you know, back you in the day, you, know you study it. More it's experience. Like you hold just... it in your hand. Right. Just, you can't just click on it. The, 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 that's the only experience. part of the ex- yeah. The whole experience. Only, Taking it out of the paper. Whole aesthetic the, experience. The, the, right. Right. And you, you, you give it. You know that those are rituals. We all, you know, we go through them. We didn't recognize. I didn't recognize them back in the day. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Even this little thing. What is this called on your shirt? This is a 45 what, adapter. Yeah, people don't know what that is. 
No, they don't. But if you have some 45s and you want to play them, fit in your player. You got to put it in there <laughs> and uh, and know what you're doing with it. That's right. And they used to pop into the, the record and yeah, stay I used, there. I used to have one. And then you'd have a bunch of them. Yeah, but yeah. Now most people. But usually your record player has a has a has a blank little circle that you can put in there. But mm-hmm. that's not. You know the 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 craft that is yeah, making right, right. some yeah. of these, but you know some people Back make the them, day. and there there's ways to kind of you know, connect to when music uh, meant the most. No doubt. Yes. Well, unfortunately, we're gonna have to let you get to it. I wish we could just talk to you some more, but he's got it. <laughs> and thank you for staying busy. Thank you for just always doing this and like trucking along and just like helping us like understand this stuff as we move along through this journey. Thank you so much, Truly. man. Keeping okay, the funk man. alive. Right on, man. Thank you for being here. Okay. Right man. on, my brother. All right, Jake. All right. Much love. Smell you guys later. Thank you, Rick. See your life pause, I don't fuck with alligators, I don't even fuck with eyes eyes, but dump up in your system, dump me in your iPod and leave the crowd like, oh god, he ripped me shit so hard, I smashed the Bogart, kill a nigga Hogart, these niggas try to be clever, but they ain't really so smart, don't start no more peanut, I got original flow, y'all sounded like some reruns, I'm the reason your shit is dead now, I punish weak rappers, little nigga, put your head down, your shit is tired, so go to bed now. Into the sand man, send a nigga to Dream Street I'm the inmate of a land and I'm dumping it creepy Fly like a bird, plus I roll with a queenie I'm like magic on the scene, can't believe that you see They be like, I know that nigga, that's a nigga from TV They see me in a minute, so they move on a new thing The rap game shaky, niggas working on moves with everybody hard now Only talk about rude things, everybody sound the same That don't include me, I print pictures with my work Better than movies, if you ain't a fan now, pretty soon you will be Suckers hate so hard, even trying to kill Niggas try to copy, ain't nothing like the real things it's so cold, it's about to get chilly I'ma wait to walk in there, make the whole world feel me 808 in your face, slapping your silly Your girl on my tip, got a wedding in Lily I'm a real G, I'm filthy, never gonna get clean Little Oakland nigga out here chasing these big dreams All eyes on me, I'ma cause a big scene I'ma act up, have my credits at the end Please try to play me up, I'ma show you how to get things Nothing yet, neither swept the meter with the baseballer like I'm Derek G to guarantee it. You ain't making moves like a paraplegic therapy for me. If you to beat you till you're barely bleeding. Wearing sneakers out like a wear a pair of sneakers. So the next time you're bumping something, all you hear is sneakers. Shit is easy, I can do it. Eyes closed or blindfolded from the bottom underwater. Rhyme control the tide flow. Came to make a name up in this game and bust it wide open. Silent till there's no more mileage. Pages of my lyrics pile of sicker than the shit you used to listen to on Spotify. Richard Pryor and his prime the way I get you high. Every time I flow, get up on it, man. I'm cold spitting compositions, causing problems for the Opposition, listen, save yourself. Fasten the latch and the clap the safety belt. The ace is deal. Blackjack rap on the damn the fucking table mail. Rockin' so hot that you probably thought that I was raising hill. Mix it with some license to ill, some MCA deal. 80s baby, I'm crazier than a mental patient. Basically, get to shake it, put holes in the speakers, ventilator. Innovate and get up on the stage and demonstrate it for the audience. Body of got him in a frenzy state. Spit the sickness on it every day. Problems like the Coliseum, y'all can see us in the back. Ready for whatever you're bringing. We steadily giving no shit to be banging so hard your head'll be ringing.
Here we go. 